0: I invite you to turn in your personal copies of God's Word to James chapter 2. It's been almost two years since the very day that I got through preaching through James 1. And I know that you guys, uh, you're very good note takers. I know that throughout these last two years you've been thinking uh, a lot about chapter 1 and the five sermons that I went through. Um, But for those who maybe didn't take as good notes or don't have that as readily on your mind, let me just remind you a little bit about chapter 1 and some of the things that we looked at. Uh, James is really concerned about practical religion. He wants to know how, or he's exhorting us, how do we walk a, a pious life? How do we have a, a pure faith that's undefiled? He's going to give us three criteria for what that looks like and how we live that out. And the first is controlling your tongue. Second is caring for the needy. And then third, it's keeping your life pure. And in these 13 verses that we're going to look at from James chapter 2, he's going to be focusing on that second facet, the caring for the needy. And what I hope that we see throughout this uh, our time tonight is that this is a far and broad uh, principle that we see in this passage. It's not just limited to the rich and the poor, but it is, uh, has a very broad scope for us to consider. And so our passage is chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. But just for context, I'm going to go up to chapter 1, verse 22 and read down from there. And so again, let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. This is the word of God. Let us ask his blessing uh, upon it and take a moment to pray. Lord Jesus, as we hear your word open to us, Right now, I pray for the congregation that you would give them ears to hear and hear not my voice, but the voice of Jesus Christ speaking through me. Father, keep my lips from anything uh, that is a lie or untrue, but keep my, my lips pure, presenting clearly what the text is saying. I pray that you would illuminate this passage, open up our eyes and our minds so that we could see the glories that are here for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The kingdom of, of man, excuse me, the kingdom of God does not operate as the kingdom of man does. The kingdom of man operates on the senses. It looks at things that can be seen, that can be tasted, that can be touched. When the kingdom of man wants to make a judgment about you, they'll look at a few different things. Maybe they'll look at your body, uh, your, your gender, your attire, uh, your age, uh, your weight, various different things. It also might look at your personality. Are you someone they like being around? Are are you funny? Are you you personable? Do you have a a humor or a dullness about you? Lastly, they might consider your mind. Are you someone who's intelligent? Are you someone who's maybe less intelligent? Maybe someone who's more uh, someone with common sense and uh, maybe ignorance or just various different things. And then after the world looks at all those things, It will make a judgment about you to see whether you're worth their time or if they can gain something from you, if you have something that could help them uh, benefit from, if if you can serve to give them an advantage. But this is not how the kingdom of God operates. The kingdom of God operates from a completely different paradigm. Some have called the kingdom of God the upside-down kingdom because Jesus, when he looks at you, he's not looking at the same things that the world looks at. He's not looking at how intelligent you are, how attractive you are, how rich that you are, all the things that the world would like you to be. Uh, Christ is really not interested in those things, those outward things. We see that in that story of the Old Testament where Samuel is going to find that new king uh, that's going to replace Saul one day. And so he goes to um, Jesse's house, the father of David. And he sets his eyes on Jesse's firstborn, uh, Eliab, and he's described in the text as being someone of good appearance and a tall stature, kind of like Saul. He was someone who was handsome, someone who was good-looking, someone who you'd want to lead you. And we know where eventually that led Saul uh, to be. He had maybe something that was attractive externally, but he lacked that internal quality, and so. Uh, Samuel, when he sees him, he's going to say, Surely this is the Lord's anointed, this firstborn, Eliab. Look at this guy. He's going to be a great king for Israel. And the Lord's going to gently correct him. And he's going to instruct Samuel from 1 Samuel 16:7. He says, Do not look on Eliab's appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. The Lord looks man looks on the outward appearance but the lord looks on the heart. And so brothers and sisters this is who we are to pattern our life off of. This is the the god that we are to imitate. Jesus Christ we are to imitate the lord in this way. And so as believers in Jesus Christ the first verse of our of our text from chapter 2 is calling us exhorting us to show no partiality. And just to briefly define what that is. What is that even mean? What is to show partiality? How we're going to understand that word throughout this text is really just showing personal favoritism based on s- some outward appearance, making a, a mental judgment about someone, maybe putting someone in a certain camp uh, in your mind uh, or, or putting them off to the side. We need to hear this text because as uh, believers, we are prone to do this. We are still prone to show personal favoritism um, but again, perhaps that's not something that uh, we're convinced of. Maybe you approach this text and you think to yourself, isn't there more important things for us to talk about than just personal favoritism? Aren't there more commandments that are, are more pressing for us to consider? But I want us to really see in this text tonight that this is a very big deal. When we show this kind of favoritism, uh, lifting someone up over another one, not based on anything else but their outward appearance, their, their maybe their wealth, their marital status, their career. All of these things, when we, when we judge someone by them, we are walking opposed to our faith uh, in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at four points in our text tonight. And the first one is that we are called to uh, do not show favoritism because it violates faith. Verse 1 in the ESV reads, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The New Living Translation does a good job of getting this idea across that's in the Greek, and it's going to translate the verse as, How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? That's the question. How can you claim to have faith uh, in Christ when we favor one person over uh, another? And so we see in this passage, again, that faith and favoritism cannot mix together. But how exactly is our faith violated when we show this kind of favoritism? Why is James saying uh, this? Why is he bringing faith uh, into this conversation at all? We need to consider that faith is both personal And then it's also communal or corporate. So that personal faith is that when we look to Jesus Christ and we we receive him, we rest upon him alone for salvation as he's freely offered to us uh, in the gospel, this is the faith that every person in this room needs to have in order to enter into the kingdom uh, of God, looking to Jesus, not to yourself, but trusting, resting in Jesus Christ for your salvation. There is no other way to enter into that celestial city, apart from Christ. But then there's the communal aspect of our faith. Uh, Even right now, we're gathered together communally. We're gathered together as a, a corporate body, together, sharing our faith. We exist as the body of Christ, together with Christ being our head. So in the body of Christ, we can have many different Uh, gifts, many different talents and functions, and some are maybe more glamorous than others, more praiseworthy, so to speak, than others. But yet every single part of the body of Christ is necessary. None of you are a throwaway. Springs Reformed Church would be hurt if one member from it left, because the body of Christ is that uh, important. You function together as one, not various different parts, but one body in Christ. Imagine just for a moment, you could think about how Paul talks about this. Imagine if you thought a part of your body was useless, so you just maybe got a scalpel and you removed it. You would never do that, because even if it's something that you may not feel is that important, every part of your body has been uniquely and purposefully designed by God. And so the same could be said of the church, the body uh, of Christ. And so, thus, if we favor some people over others, we are violating this communal faith, this corporate faith that we have together as the body uh, of Christ. And then we also violate, just as importantly, our personal faith in Christ. Why did God save you? Was it because you were so great? You had something so spectacular to offer to? Uh, the church, or was it because we, all of us in this room, are are poor, needy, weak sinners in need of a great Savior? Famous quote that I have hanging up in my classroom at ECA. Jonathan Edwards once said, "You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary." And so if that's our lot, our starting point as a Christian, how then could we go and and look at someone else and say? that we are maybe better uh, than them. Uh, Christ saves sinners. We don't save ourselves. Christ shows mercy to those who do not show mercy to one another. And so look how contradictory to faith uh, this is in the case study of verses 2 to 4 in chapter 2. James says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What was the treatment of this man based upon It was based upon his outward appeal. Those in this case study gave more valuable to the man who looked better, more appealing, more uh, attractive, more rich. They said, you sit here right in the front. This is the respectable row in our church. These are where all the important people sit. While they looked at the poor man who maybe had a smell about him, maybe he doesn't have his own home, maybe he's not someone you maybe want to have in your home, or maybe it might make you a little bit uncomfortable. He says, you sit here at, at my feet, or you stand back over there. This kind of treatment of one another is just antithetical to the gospel. It's directly opposed to the gospel. Consider the fact of God's sovereignty over prosperity and poverty. Think about just some individuals in your life, or maybe even you can think of yourself, you have worked harder than anyone. You, have, uh, you are very intelligent, you are very skillful in whatever your craft is, but throughout your life you've had these stumbling blocks, these things that you get a lot of money in your bank account and if something happens and it's wiped away, it's lost, and you just can't ever seem to get ahead. Again, maybe that's yourself or maybe that's someone you know. And then there's other people in life that maybe don't try as hard, they don't apply themselves in certain ways that maybe uh, the more skillful per- person does. And they seem to be very prosperous, very rich. We read in 1 Samuel 2 verse 7, this idea that God's sovereign even over that. It says, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. And so to make a mental judgment about someone or to treat them based upon their riches or their external worth is to violate the God that makes people poor and makes them rich. So lastly, consider how favoritism violates faith. When we consider how Jesus is described, you look at verse 1 again, he's described as the Lord of glory. Jesus is the one who from all eternity existed in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the second person of the triune God stepped down from his throne. Think about how he's described in Isaiah 6. His The train of the robe fills the temple. When Isaiah was standing before God, there was nowhere he could stand where he wouldn't be stepping on the robe, the train of Christ Jesus. And this Christ, this, the second person of the triune God, traded that for a time to be born here on earth. How much did Jesus have at his death? What did he own? What was his property like? He didn't own lands, he didn't have a wife, he didn't have children. All that he had was the clothes on his back and people casted lots for them. Jesus said in Matthew 8.20, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Think about how the people in James Day may have treated Christ if he were to come into their assembly, he didn't have gold, he didn't have nice apparel, he wore the same thing every day, he may have smelled a little bit, he didn't have any uh, anywhere to, to to rest his head, and yet he did what he did for us. And so this is how the sin of favoritism violates your faith, but uh, very closely connected to it is, secondly, you must not show favoritism because it violates God. not show favoritism because it violates God that case study of the rich and the poor shows how easy it is for us to live in the kingdom of man that is really not living according to true reality to things as they really are and look at verse five with me it says listen my beloved brothers this is reality right here has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. This is the reality that God has shown all throughout redemptive history. God often is choosing the poor, the weak, the needy, rather than those who are haughty, those who are uh, exalting themselves. You could think about when God uh, saved Israel from Egypt. God chose Israel slaves to be his people. He didn't choose Pharaoh. He didn't choose the slave masters. In fact, God deliberately goes out of his way to choose Israel because they are such a pitiful people. Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 to 8 explains this idea. Moses writes, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number that any than any other people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loves you. And so, lest any of us think that God saved us because there was something so valuable in and of ourselves, because we had. Something so great to offer to God, the Holy Spirit, in this, that passage, he humbles us. God chose Israel because they were weak and pitiful. Slaves in bondage under Pharaoh. Working hard day after day. God chose them because he chose them. God loved them. God loves you because he loves you, Period. You don't need to go on farther than that. Jesus Christ has done all the work for you. Thus, God loves you because of the work of Christ. And so while the world may dishonor the poor, we see three spiritual blessings that the weak have as they're described in verse 5. They're rich in faith, they're heirs of the kingdom, and then they're lovers of God. That's the reality. Those, those poor people, the the weak and needy in this world, if they're in Jesus Christ they are actually rich in faith every person in Christ is an heir to the kingdom and in the kingdom of God every person who has the spirit of God dwelling in them, though they may be right now in rags and in poverty and maybe living paycheck to paycheck will one day sit on the throne with Jesus Christ in all this splendor, having a robe of righteousness given to them that's not their own, it was paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. All these things are going to be given to those who are currently poor, but those who are in Jesus Christ. Consider again this, another passage that makes this point, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29. It says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. We need to have our eyes open to this reality and see things as they really are. Of all the places that it would be wrong to show favoritism, in the church of Jesus Christ would be the place that it would be the most out of order, the, the, the most sinful. The church is the city where the widows and the fatherless and the weak go, where the spiritually bankrupt go to have salvation and go to have their needs Met. And so as I was thinking about this text, was thinking about your context, and I want to give three very practical applications for how we can apply this text and go beyond just uh, the riches and the poverty and think about how this can be applied in other ways as well, more broadly speaking. So one of the things we in the RP Church need to be aware of and on guard against is treating people differently. Maybe on their understanding of theology. Maybe their understanding of reform theology, Covenant uh, theology. Maybe in our minds we put people into two different camps. Those who have read Calvin's Institutes over here. Those who uh, have never even heard of that book or anything other of Covenant theology. Maybe they can't even define what that is in another camp on maybe the JV squad. Good theology is 1,000% demanded by God in Scripture. But we must never think that we're better than someone else can because we can define a term like superlapsarianism when others can't. We ought to be humble. The same spirit that was in John Calvin was in that Arminian John Wesley. And if we only associate with those who think exactly like we do and only have a fellowship and a love for those who are just like us, we're going to ostracize ourselves from the rest of the body of Christ who very well may be much farther along in their sanctification than some of us are. And so we ought to be praising God that he doesn't demand perfect theology to get into heaven because if that was the case, not a single person in this room would be able to enter. All of the church, to some varying degree, is in need of correction is in need of God's opening our eyes to see the scriptures more clearly. And the second way I want uh, we can apply this text, the principle in this text and this is going to take some a little bit of explanation so allow me to explain what I'm what I'm getting at here, but playing favorites with preachers. There's nothing wrong with preferring one preaching style uh, over another. You guys are in a very difficult case if I was in your shoes, I would have a hard time having a new preacher come in and preach in a different style a different fashion than uh, the person that was in there before him uh, um, be difficult for us to listen to those different voices uh, you don't always have to uh, have a feel you don't always have a feel for how they communicate and it can get time it takes time to get used to but we we have to approach the preaching of God's Word not based on the preacher. Certain preachers might come in that you maybe have a hard time listening to, but listen to them and discern by the Word of God. Listen to them as if it's actually Jesus Christ speaking to you, because it is. Let me explain. Ephesians 2.13. Paul's writing to the Ephesians about Jesus Christ, and he says, and he... Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. Jesus Christ never went to Ephesus. It's about a thousand miles or so away from Israel, uh, by land. Uh, so what could Paul possibly be talking about here? Well Jesus is preached. Jesus is actually preaching through the preachers, through the apostles, through the prophets. And so when a preacher comes to take your pulpit, listen to them uh, and discern what they are saying by the word of God. And remember that it is Christ speaking to you more than just the man who speaks. And then lastly, one more application. Another one that needs explaining is, uh, uh, has to do with being on guard against uh, playing favorites with those you get along with. And be on guard, especially against avoiding those you have unresolved conflict with. If you're a member here at Springs Reformed Church, Christ calls us, uh, calls you to love one another. Christ isn't interested in your playing nice and, and your putting on a good show when you're when you're talking uh, to one another. But he wants his children to be in harmony, to be at peace, to work through those conflicts. To, to to resolve those issues. Paul again writes in 1 Corinthians 12:21. he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Every member in this body is needed, and every member bears the image of God. And to avoid one another is to avoid the God who placed his name upon the individual believers uh, of this church. And so thirdly, we go on to consider this next point, this idea about about love. Thirdly, do not show favoritism because it violates love. At this point, we could still maybe easily deceive ourselves into thinking that maybe playing favoritism based upon some outward appearance or some status really isn't that big of a deal. Maybe you even think about how you do that sometimes as well, and it's just not too big of an issue to you. But look at verses 8 to 11 with me, and we're going to look at this and see that it is a rather uh, significant uh, issue. Verse 8 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do commit adultery, excuse me, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And so James uses extravagant terms to describe the law. And there's some disagreement about why he's using this word royal, but the, the main thing that he's getting at is he's chiefly referring to this law of love. Notice that the law here is not simply you shall love your neighbor, period. But notice those last two words it says as yourself. So that we can continue living and take care of our bodies, God has put in us uh, self preservation. Uh, we know that when we're hungry, we need to seek out food to nourish our body. That's something good, that we take care of ourselves. It's, it's a good thing that we have that desire. When we need sleep, we seek it out. Maybe we don't always find it for various different reasons, but we do seek it out to try to, to care for our bodies. But if you show favoritism uh, in, in that way, in, in the body of Christ, you are convicted as a transgressor. And so suddenly, this command to love your member is gonna take on this this amplified meaning again, this loving your neighbor as yourself. There are none who do not violate this royal law of love. Favoritism is just one of countless ways that we violate this law, unless we think again that this isn't that big of a deal that yeah, maybe i I play uh or i I play favorites over here, but I don't do this sin or vice versa. We see uh, that if we uh, violate just one law, we're guilty of breaking all of them. One commentator gives a helpful comment. He says, if we view the law as a series of individual commandments, we could assume that disobedience of a particular commandment incurred guilt for that commandment only. But in fact, the individual commandments are part and parcel of one indivisible whole because they reflect the will of the one lawgiver. To violate just one commandment is to disobey God himself and render a person entirely guilty before him. This scripture makes clear we don't want to play a comparison game with our sin. We don't want to compare one thing the scripture forbids to justify something else that the scripture forbids. The human heart is so cunning as to deceitfully comfort itself and boast that I'm doing pretty good. I'm not walking in this sin over here. Yeah, I I know I'm struggling with this sin, but this one I'm doing well in. You might be tempted to boast that you don't uh, view pornography. Praise God for that. But perhaps you gossip about one another. Perhaps you gossip about those who bear, again, that very image of God. Gossip against those who Christ laid his life down for. Doing this would be like comparing yourself to Hitler to uh, say that you're a good person. You may not be responsible for all the deaths that Hitler had uh, committed, but uh, we are responsible and we do steal, we do lie, and we do covet. So again, if we break just one law, James is saying we have become a, a violator, a transgressor of that perfect and holy law of God. And so the law of God declares to you from Mount Sinai that you are indeed uh, a transgressor of God. You are worthy of God's eternal wrath and punishment from Him who is an infinitely holy God. And apart from Jesus Christ, no mercy exists. Not for this sin of partiality of favoritism, not for adultery that we commit in our hearts, murder that we commit in our heart when we're angry at one another. And if you discriminate and judge others by outward appearances, what we see in this text, verse 13, is that God will discriminate and judge you, not only by your outward appearances, not only by your actions. That might be one thing. But he's going to go even further to judge your thoughts and your heart, your intentions, your motives. Look at verse 13. It says, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Matthew says in chapter 7, Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 1 and 2, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If God were to judge you based upon how you treat others, how you think about others, would you be able to stand? Friends, favoritism violates the gospel. It violates your faith. It violates your Savior. It violates this holy law of love. But praise God for this beautiful word, so, in verse 12. It's good news of so, therefore, because You are a transgressor because you are a sinner. So go on to think more about this verse. And so lastly, do not show favoritism because it violates mercy. Favoritism violates mercy. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. The NASB uh, uses uh, a different uh, way to translate that word, to translate it as uh, freedom. But maybe one question we have is, how could we possibly call uh, any kind of law uh, liberating or, or freeing? How could that word be attached to it? Law, by in and of itself, its very nature is binding. That's even true of the law of God. But the law that we are bound to in Christ Jesus a liberating law. It's a law that allows us to be truly human. The Bible says that we are made in the image of God that we uh, consist uh, and, and, and bear to a large degree now after the fall his knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And so when God's law which has has as its foundation love, when that's obeyed by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're enabled to live as God made you to be, uh, truly human, uh, someone who's not walking in error or, or in sin, but in, in love and in life. We could think to ourselves that when we disobey the law, that we're actually free. I remember that being a thought that I used to have when maybe I was younger and I was a teenager, thinking about the restrictions of God's word and, and the law that was put in place and how binding that it was. When really, it was the guardrails that was keeping me on the straight and narrow. It was what was protecting me from walking in various different sins. And God uh, had that for me so that I would be, it would be a freeing, liberating thing, not a, a, a bondage, but something that's free. And so when you violate the law of God, thinking that it will satisfy you, it's like drinking poison that has a warning label on the front that says, we'll kill you if you ingest. But you drink it anyway, thinking that it might satisfy. That is not freedom. It's good that there is a command on a label on the front that says, do not consume. Uh, it's for your protection. And so the, the, the law given to the Christian in Christ can rightfully be called as liberating and freedom but only according to these two works of God done on your behalf. The first is that Jesus has removed the penalty of sin under the law by taking the place of lawbreakers. Taking all of the curse, all of the wrath that you deserved, not for maybe murdering someone, but just something as simple as showing favoritism, for looking at someone and making a mental note of them in your mind about someone being more valuable or having more worth than someone else. Christ took that for you. And Jesus also removed the penalty of sin by being born under the law and abiding faithfully in every commandment of God so that he could purchase a bride for himself. And so if you are a transgressor of God's law this evening, consider verse 12. Think about this liberating, freeing law that is yours in Jesus Christ, this law of love. Throw yourself upon Christ who took the penalty and the wrath on your behalf and obeyed God's law perfectly, again, on your behalf. Then a second work of God that allows us to to rightfully call this law of love a law of liberty and freedom is secondly, is in that uh, if you are in Christ and dwelled by the Holy Spirit, you have power to obey this royal law. Every commandment that's in Scripture, God has given you by His Holy Spirit. If you are regenerated, if you are in Jesus Christ, He has given you power to obey it. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11 says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither Is it far off? Only the Holy Spirit can give you this ability, can give you this power. Have you tasted of that power? Have you tasted in that ability where when a temptation comes, the Spirit of God abiding in you gives you power to say no? If you haven't tasted of that yet, consider your life. Examine yourself. Ask yourself, are you truly in Jesus Christ? Because one of the blessings about being a Christian is that you can indeed say no to sin. Sin does not have to have power over you. Perhaps you struggle with anger or pornography. You are not a slave to that anymore. In Christ Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be set free from that. Not to give in to the harsh slave master, uh, the harsh pharaoh, Uh, reigning over you, but you can submit yourself to Christ Jesus. So, how can you be set free to live in the law of liberty while still judging others and judging them by outward appearances? That man who does that lives as if he's still under that harsh, judgmental, unforgiving law of Moses rather than The law of liberty in Christ. In Christ, know that you have received mercy without end. Therefore, we must show mercy without end to one another. We must share that grace that we have received. Remember that Christ despises mental judgments that we make of one another. Remember that Christ Jesus didn't just die for you if you are in Christ, but he died for all of the elect uh, in the church. Every member in the invisible church, Christ died for. And so praise God that because of the work of Christ, mercy triumphs over judgment. Live faithfully in the kingdom of God under his reign of mercy. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we consider our sin and this sin of favoritism and partiality and making mental distinctions of one another, we pray that she would humble us and you would forgive us and that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would help us to obey this great commandment of love in which if we obey that commandment, we fulfill and walk in all of the other commandments. I ask for your blessing upon this congregation upon springs thank you so much for this day where i got to spend with them bless them as they consider this sweet balm of christ and the gospel apply it to them holy spirit may they know the sweet comfort of being released from that law of moses and enabled to walk under the law of liberty in jesus christ it's in his name that we pray amen